0: welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church podcast Sunday school by Gage Crowder on April 10th Lord's Day service Studies in Biblical Theology Sunday School. We're going to talk more about what that means and how we're going to develop some of those themes. Uh, But first, let's go ahead and get started uh, with a word of prayer. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for uh, Sunday. We give you thanks uh, for this day of rest, the Sabbath that you've given us. Thank you for gathering us together here in Christ today to worship you. Thank you for all the Blessing that you are going to bring us through your spirit, through your word. Lord, we pray that as we meditate on your word today in service, in Sunday school, uh, various ways that it's going to come to us this morning, through baptism, through the table, uh, through the sermon itself, we pray that we would be growing like fruitful trees, that you would make us to prosper like the blessed man of Psalm 1. We pray that you would... uh, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to love you this morning. We ask that you do this through Christ and for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right. So, studies in biblical theology. Um, last week, Jason introduced this topic to us, um, gave us a, a good direction for where we're going. He talked to us about covenants, all right, uh, the major covenants that make up the the structure of scripture, right? Covenants are the big, uh, one of my pastors told me a long time ago, they're the backbone of the Bible. Uh, Easy way to remember it, he gave me uh, your knuckles, all right? It starts with Adam, go to Noah, Abraham, David, excuse me, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, Okay, you can follow that all the way through Scripture. It's kind of this big uh, architectural scheme. I think the analogy used was like a castle, right? Uh, you enter the front door of the Bible through the covenants, and the covenants are the structure that makes up the whole of it. Um, that's good and right. That is the macro structure. Excuse me, the the, uh, the macro structure of the Bible. Okay. That is the one big story that's being told from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, God is moving the history of redemption along through the covenants. What we want to do, and well, what I want to do over the next couple of weeks, is start looking at some of the microstructures. Okay? So in this whole big picture of the Bible, uh, where the covenants are leading us from Genesis to Revelation, you, you can follow the covenants, but you can also follow... Uh, small images, um, you might be able to call them symbols, okay, uh, and not as in a code, but in reoccurring pictures all right, that comes up from Genesis to Revelation uh, that helps us connect all of the stories of the Bible. And that's the point. Biblical theology is about seeing the Bible as one big story. It's one big story that's being told by God for his people, Genesis to Revelation. So, the Bible's held together not merely by recurring and building stories, but by recurring and building images. And one of the most significant images um, is that of a garden. All right? Uh, Scripture is full of seeds, plants, trees, bushes, flowers, and even Edens. Okay? Not just one Eden, but multiple we're going to look at that uh, this morning. So let's jump in. Um, What unifies scripture is the plot and the person, okay? The plot is this. We begin in Eden, right, in Genesis. We're all familiar with that story. Uh, However, when Adam and Eve sin, they are what? They are exiled, right? They are kicked out of the garden. They are brought back in through an exodus that leads to a new creation, a new Eden, all right? So that's the plot. Eden, exile, exodus, new Eden. All right? And all of this happens through a person. That person is called the seed. All right? So Let's see how this works. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go to Genesis 1. All right? Let's just start right at the beginning. We've got seven days of creation. right? We're familiar with this story. Uh, On day one, God creates, he separates light from darkness. On day two, uh, God does what? He splits, um, he makes a a barrier between heaven and earth. It's these two waters, right? The waters above, waters below. Uh, The earth on day two of creation is nothing but a giant water ball, okay? And over that water ball, there is a canopy of water. So we've split light and dark. We've split water and water. And then day three, out of that water, the water, it says, um, in verse, where are we at? Verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. It was so God called the land earth. So out of this water comes this one singular plot of land. Right? The rest of the earth is just this water and you have this island, Okay, this island island that we learn is like a mountain, more on that coming in a moment here, Uh, on that island God puts man, his image, all right, now the idea of image uh, that God makes man in in Genesis 26, let's make man in our image after our likeness, Uh, that idea of image tells us one thing, this island that God plants a garden in is also like a temple, right? What do you have in a temple? You've got a couple of things. You've got the presence of your God, right? But you also have a picture of that God, usually. Uh, The reason that God is always so strong in commanding his people not to make idols, not to make images of him, is because we are the image of God, all right? The earth that God makes here in Genesis 1 is a temple. This is where God dwells with his people. And the special place that God does that is the Garden of Eden. Uh, About the Garden of Eden specifically, look at uh, Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Verse 7, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So, uh, we commonly think of, you know, this whole first creation, the whole thing is just Eden. All right? Eden is actually a small garden that's planted on the east side of a place called Eden, right? The land that God calls us to come up out of day three of the creation, uh, that whole place is called the land of Eden. But the garden of Eden is a small place on the east side of that land of Eden. Okay. Um, significant. We'll circle back around to that in a moment. Uh, God takes man and woman, puts them there, and gives them the command, like Jason Talked to us about last week, be fruitful and multiply, right? Uh, they get that Emmanuel principle, God is dwelling with them there in the garden. Uh, so when we put it all together, we have a well-watered temple garden that Ezekiel 28 tells us is on a mountain. God's presence is dwelling with his people. Uh, God comes to Adam and Eve directly to speak with them, to fellowship with them in this garden sanctuary. Um, But we know that very quickly things go wrong, right? Uh, Just immediately after, Genesis chapter 3, once this creation is made, the perfect garden temple is ready. Adam, the priest of that garden temple, is uh, called to cultivate it and spread it over the earth. Uh, There is sin, right? The serpent sneaks into the garden, deceives the woman, and then Adam sins after Eve is deceived. And they are... Exiled. Okay. Uh, we read that in Genesis three twenty-two through 24. Um, now, before that exile, though, there is a promise that we are all familiar with, right? Genesis three 15. Let's read that. Uh, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between... You and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, your seed and her seed, as some of your translations may say, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. We know this verse. Um, We are told here that there is this permanent war that's going to happen uh, between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Right. It is going to lead to an exodus, okay, this judgment that's going to happen. The, the heel of the seed of the woman is going to be bruised, but the serpent's head will be crushed in this judgment. Um, that is going to be our picture of exodus. We'll come back around to that. Um, Adam and Eve, though, are not able to get back into Eden without going through the angel, right? God places the cherubim on the east side, the east entrance of the Garden of Eden. Uh, In verse 24, uh, he has a flaming sword turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That idea of flaming sword is going to be significant. Hold on to that. Uh, But we can see the pattern here. There's an Eden. There's an exile. Adam Adam and Eve are driven out. There's going to be an exodus. There's this judgment that's going to bring them back in somehow to fulfill what they were called to do. And that is going to happen through this promised seed. All right? Basic picture. That's, uh, if you can't understand that in the first part of the Bible, the rest of the Bible doesn't really make sense. All right? That's kind of the fundamental building block. So, we are told also in the end of that curse that the ground is going to bear thorns as well as good fruit for Adam. Right? He has to work in toil now. There's going to be Thorns and thistles, instead of just nourishing food that comes to him from his work. But also, Eve's womb. okay, uh, uh, The soil of Eve's womb, she is going to bear, like the earth, thorns as well as good fruit. All right? She is going to bear children of the devil as well as children of God. Uh, and we see that immediately with two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel uh, are supposed to be the ones who, in the beginning, begin to undo what Adam and Eve have done. All right, They are supposed to take them back. Cain, the oldest son, is supposed to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. But instead, what we learn, and you know from the story, uh, absolutely the opposite happens. Cain turns out to be the seed of the serpent, crushing his brother rather than crushing the serpent's head, as he was supposed to do. Um, and because of that, Cain is further exiled away. Instead of bringing people back to the garden, instead of bringing his parents and his family back into God's presence and fellowship, he leads them further out. Cain is further pushed away. He is a wanderer over the earth, we're told. Uh, he's not a pilgrim because he has no destination. Right? He is in this howling wilderness, uh, and he has to live out his days there. However... Adam and Eve are given another son, Seth. Uh, and Seth, eventually, we read this lineage in chapter five of Genesis. I promise we're not going to go through every chapter of the Bible, by the way. <laughs> it's just the stuff here in Genesis is so foundational uh, that you you have to get it. Alright. So we've got to go through a couple just back to back. The Sethites, we read about them in chapter five, they eventually give birth to a man named Noah. We are familiar with the story of Noah. In a crooked world, there is no righteous left. Humanity is exiled from God's presence. They are growing worse and worse. They are growing in violence. Uh, The seed of Satan and the seed of Eve are intermarrying, right? The sons of men are uh, coming down and marrying and producing offspring with the daughters of God, we are told at the beginning of Genesis 6. Um, These two lines are intermingling, and there is only one man left. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, we're told in Genesis 6. Eight. So he becomes the seed that we're looking for, right? He leads God's people through the first exodus. In, Genesis, excuse me, in Exodus 15, the book of Exodus, Moses describes what's happening uh, in their uh, crossing the Red Sea, going out from Egypt as a flood okay, that comes over the Egyptians. Noah's flood is the first sea crossing. It is the seed of the Lord succeeding over the seed of the serpent who perishes in the water. And so this sets a precedent for us. It sets a pattern. It sets a picture that we're going to follow all the way through. And that is God is going to deliver his people. He is going to bring about an exodus through a water judgment. That's how we are going to cross back into the Eden land. This watery judgment leads to a new creation. So when Noah is on the ark, it's like a new creation is already beginning. So think about it. What did we say uh, at the first couple minutes here? What is, what is day two of creation like? What's in day two? Yeah. Water above and water below. Right, water above and water below. When Noah is on the ark, what is there? Water above and water below. Water above and water below. Exactly. Uh, So we have a, a day two, okay? And just like day three of the creation week, we are told throughout Genesis chapter eight that the waters are gathered into one place and the tops of mountains appear, exactly like day three of creation. Finally, to cap off this new creation, Noah lands on top of Mount Ararat and like Adam, he's told in Genesis nine, one to three, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Noah is being brought to a new Eden. But there is, uh, there's one thing missing from this picture, and that's what? We've got a man on top of a mountain who's received God's uh, commissioning. What's missing? What do we not have? Yeah. Okay, right. We don't have that garden temple, right? We are missing an actual garden. But it comes around. Genesis 9.20 tells us that Noah plants a vineyard. Like a new Adam who has received his commission from God to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth from this mountain, he's going to do that from this vineyard that he planted. So this cycle seems to be complete. We've got Eden, we've seen the exile, right, this big flood that happens, we've seen the exodus, Noah coming through it with his family, and now the new creation that brings a new Eden, a new garden temple on top of this mountain where Noah dwells and is going to fill the earth Uh, But unfortunately, we are told this in Genesis 8.21. The Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth continually. The flood may have changed the location of man, but it did not change the heart of man, the real problem. The watery judgment does not deal with the root of the issue. Remember, it's sin that causes exile. Sin is what drives Adam and Eve away from God. And sin is not dealt with by the flood judgment that happens here with Noah, even though it completes this whole cycle. So, uh, when we move forward, we aren't surprised that there is a new serpent in this new garden. Who is that new serpent? Do (laughs) what? Who is it? Yeah. yeah, Ham. There you go, right? Kid, the father of Canaan. Yeah, I knew you were going. Cain, excuse me, Ham, is that new serpent? Sneaks into Noah's garden, into Noah's tent, right? Commits sort of uh, sin of authority against his father. Okay, um, and we know that from the curse that's given in Genesis nine twenty five. Cursed be Canaan. The servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Um, Ham is exiled from his family as the seed of Satan. And we learn that Shem, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Shem is going to be this new seed of Eve that crushes the wicked Hamites and brings about the new creation. So the earth falls under the corruption of the seed of Satan. though. No, unfortunately, Genesis 10 gives us what we usually call the table of nations. Okay, It's all the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. It's where we learn about places like Egypt and places like Babel. The Amalekites, the Hittites, all, right, all these people that we're familiar with, they come right here from each of these descendants. You want to know who's good guy, bad guy in the Bible? Go back to Genesis chapter 10. It'll explain everything. Um, so the descendants. Go on to erect a false mountain, a false Eden that we call the Tower of Babel. The sin, they are like Cain, their father, exiled across the earth, All right, kicked further out, like Cain was kicked further out. They're no longer able to understand each other. They have a new language. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, in spite of all this wickedness, God's promise of a redeeming seed continues. Shem, where we uh, get our phrase... He begets a man named Eber, where we get the Eberus, the Hebrews, who begets Terah, and Terah begets Abram. Abram is a new Adam, God calls Abram out of Ur, Genesis 12.1. Abram undergoes a sort of exodus out of Ur. He is given the same to Adam and Noah, Genesis 12.1. He tells them he's going to bless him, that his seed is going to be fruitful and multiply across the face of the earth to bless all the nations. Exactly what Adam and what Noah are supposed to do. Uh, he's told that it's going to land, and what's more, again, this land that the seed of Abram is going to be led to. When Lot lifts up his eyes to toward, it looks toward that promised land. We are told that it is like the Garden of God. Genesis thirteen ten. Let's try this one. Yeah, right. no problem. <laughs> How's that? Good. Yeah, no problem. So the land that Abram and his seed are going to inherit is Genesis 13.10, quote, like the garden of God. Uh, We are going to see another exodus. And along the way, meanwhile, Abram Abram is traveling from garden to garden on his way to that new Eden. We're told, Genesis 12.6, that he is by the oaks of Morik. We are told Genesis 14, 13, that he's by the oaks of Mamre. Genesis 21, uh, he's by the ravines of Gerar. Abram is always dwelling in these garden-like places. Along the way, he's crushing heads of the serpents. Remember, he goes down into Egypt, and he comes back with all their plunder, right? He, he he takes from them as he leaves. Uh, he defeats Chedorlaomer, right, with his 318 fighting men and steals the spoils from them. He defeats Abimelech, the Philistine, all right, and all the descendants of Ham. However, in Genesis 15, 12 to 14, Abram is also promised by God that his descendants will first undergo a 400 year exile a 400-year wandering in the land of Egypt. Okay, before they fully inherit this new garden promised land, they are going to have to stay in Egypt for a while. And that's exactly what happens. Abraham becomes the father of Isaac. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob, uh, who is later renamed Israel, we know, and, be, and he becomes the father of 12 sons. These 12 sons uh, hate their youngest brother, much like Cain hated Abel. They sell their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Joseph undergoes an exile from his home and family, but he is eventually brought through a judgment exodus and raised to second in command over the land of Egypt, where he uses his position to bless his brothers. In spite of the seeming like the center of the story, however, we reach the end of the narrative in Genesis 49. Finally, we've made it out. All right, I told you we were going to get there. Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Uh, Israel blesses a different son. Jacob blesses Judah rather than Joseph, which is strange at first if you think about it. Uh, but we see why. Judah offers himself as a sacrifice for his brothers, where uh, Joseph had never done so. Over time, however, we're told that Israel's family in Egypt begins sinfully worshiping idols okay, during this 400-year period. Joshua 24:14. Joshua commands the people to put away the idols that they served in Egypt. Ezekiel 20, 6 through 9, tells us that while the children of Israel were in Egypt, they were serving the gods of Egypt. That is until God brings us a new Noah. And that is who? Moses, right? Moses, we are told, in Exodus 1, is placed in a new ark. The basket that Moses is placed in is daubed, we are told in Genesis 1, with bitumen and pitch. And the word that's actually used there, uh, we translated it, it's probably basket in most of your translations. It's the exact same word for the ark that Noah came through. Moses, like a new Noah, is placed inside the ark and pushed down the river where he comes up to be uh, brought up in Pharaoh's house like Noah, like Joseph. Later, as He's wandering in the wilderness like an Abraham. Moses is suddenly addressed by God from a burning bush. He's called to rescue God's people through a series of cataclysmic judgments against Egypt, which culminate with what we know as the Exodus proper, right? This crossing of the Red Sea in Genesis, excuse me, in Exodus 14. Moses, as he is instructed by God, takes Israel to the land promised to Abraham, the garden like Canaan, which we are told is flowing with... Milk and honey, right? Milk is uh, uh, sweet, nourishing water, and honey is sweet, nourishing fruit, right? It's garden picture that's given here. And in Exodus 15, uh, Moses tells us, go over to Exodus 15. Moses sings this song of deliverance as he's leading the children of Israel out after they come through Uh they are exiled in Egypt. They have been brought through this exodus. So what do we expect to see? A new creation, right? We expect to see a new Eden. And we see this in Genesis. Excuse me, Exodus 15, 15. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizing the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm, They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever. So through this exodus, the people are brought back. They are planted in this Eden-like Canaan. All right Well, where God will dwell with His people, it says like a sanctuary, like a temple. This is a recreation theme that we're seeing all the way through. So this exodus is like the flood, we're told, and God is going to bless his seed along the way, all right? You know, they start traveling, they go to Sinai, they're journeying toward the promised land. And from the mountain when God is speaking with Moses, it's beginning in Exodus 20. God gives the people a portable garden, a portable place that they can get back into his presence through a representative, that is the tabernacle. It is like a portable Eden because it is guarded by cherubim angels at the entrance. That entrance, just like Eden, is on the east side. Before you can enter, you must go through a water basin that's on the outer court of The tabernacle. Uh, It is flowing from the tabernacle like rivers out of Eden. You must make a burnt offering which imitates the knife in the fire, the flaming sword of the angel that is stationed outside of the garden. There's a tree of life inside, right? The golden lampstand. There is tree food. There's a table of showbread. There is a garden filled with angels woven into the tapestries on the wall, okay? All inside of the tabernacle, uh, it's pictures of angels and trees. This is an Eden we're in. But most importantly, what makes the garden the garden? It's where God dwells with his people. In the tabernacle, God dwells in the midst of his people, above, enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, we're told. So all seems to be going well again, right? Uh, we know this is not the rest of the story, unfortunately. Uh, this exiled seed is headed back toward the garden of God with God's word, God's tabernacle, a proto-garden, to teach them about their sin and God's mercy and sacrifice along the way. The people, however, rebel. When they get to the edge of the land, the sons of Shem fear the sons of Ham, though they have been assured of victory by God multiple times. The first generation after the Exodus is exiled from the promised land. After a 40-year wandering in the wilderness, they die in judgment outside of the New Eden, just like Adam, their father. Nevertheless, God is still true to his covenant. In the midst of their sinful wanderings, we hear the words of the rogue prophet Balaam. Uh, He was hired by Balak, who was afraid of Israel because they were... uh, Going around destroying their enemies, he was afraid he was going to be destroyed. So Balak hires Balaam to come and curse Israel for him. Uh, you know the story probably from the donkey, right? The talking donkey. Uh, well, what does uh, past the talking donkey part? All right, what does Balaam actually say? Go over to Numbers 24. Numbers 24. The people are wandering toward this uh, out of their exile toward this new Eden, and Balaam says this. Numbers 24, 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of a man who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sun's of Sheth, Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed, Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the surviving cities, go to verse 21, and he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is the set in the rock, Um, lost my place there, I'm sorry, and he took up his discourse, alas, who shall live when God does this? Ships shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Ashur. Eber. He too shall come to utter destruction. All right. We're given this vision from Balaam's final oracle uh, that Israel will be, quote, verse 6 of chapter 24 like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside the river, like aloes the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the water. Water shall flow from his buckets, his seed shall be like many waters. It's Eden imagery that Balaam sees coming. But now a new Moses, Joshua rises up by the choice of God to lead the new generation of people from their sin-imposed exile to another exodus, this time over the Jordan River. That's how the book of Joshua begins. They've been wandering for 40 years uh, for what would have been a 12-day journey on foot. Uh, That's what sin is. Right? wandering around in a wilderness when the goal is right before you. That's what Israel is up to here. Taking 40 years for what takes 12 days. Sin causes that futility. After a seven-year house cleaning in Canaan, where the Hamites are subjected to the Semites, were introduced to a new seed of Eve, a new Moses, David. Over the years, Israel had declined in the promised land under the judges until they asked for a king. They are given a wicked king whose name is Saul. Saul leads Israel yet again into an exile, but this is a different one. This exile that Saul leads the people into, is a, is, it's a strange exile. It's different from the rest of them. Instead of all of Israel having to leave their garden land and go somewhere else, uh, the exile happens because the Ark of the Covenant is stolen. Right, The thing that makes Eden Eden. God's presence with his people is taken away. Um, David rises up, though, and wins back the ark. He is Saul's successor. He shows himself to be like Eve's promised seed. We read the story of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. We're all familiar with it. But a point that we often miss is the fact that Goliath is presented to us as a representative of the seed of Satan uh, from Genesis 3.15. We are told in 1 Samuel... 17.5, 17.5, that Goliath is wearing bronze armor. Okay. Uh, a better translation of that, that Hebrew word there, that he's wearing nekesh armor, literally means snake armor, scaly armor. David, like the seed of Eve, is going to crush the head of Goliath, the serpent. All right. That's what's going on in this picture. David is presented to us as that seed of Eve that's going to lead this final conquest, this final exodus that brings people back finally into the garden. He recaptures the ark in chapter 6 of second Samuel and brings it to Israel, thus ending their exile. Israel is once again in an Eden. David like Adam, plants a garden tabernacle on the east side of the city, Jerusalem, which we call Mount Zion, right It's the east side, just like the garden was planted in the east. David is not satisfied with this mere tent though, as it's often called. He wants to construct a permanent dwelling. For God's presence. He wants to build a temple. However, God tells David through Nathan the Prophet that this house building, this constructed temple, will be left to David's seed, who will be an eternal king on David's throne. He will build God's house, and God, we are told in 2 Samuel 7, will build David's royal house forever through his seed. Solomon thus constructs the temple, this garden-like structure with trees all around outside of it and inside of it, uh, with uh, flowers around it on the doorpost, and most of all, God's presence okay, in the middle of the temple. Um, Israel is in this new Eden territory. Again, not the end of the story, unfortunately. Israel does not stay true to God in this new creation. Israel is still inclined to sin rather than inclined to love the Lord. The seed of David, Solomon himself is led astray by his foreign wives. He falls into idolatry, we are told. And as we read in first through second kings, the kingdom eventually splits in half after Solomon's death, and the wicked king after wicked king, with a few exceptions, lead Israel into further and further idolatry and depravity. Because of this, the prophets arise to warn Israel that they are going to be exiled to Babylon because of their sin. Isaiah 1, 29 through 31. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. The strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. Both of them shall burn together, with none to quench them. Isaiah 5, we read that Israel, God's righteous seed, has become a wicked vineyard. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on the very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted in it choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, yielded thorns, we may say. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard, what I will do to Israel. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, a wilderness. It shall be pruned And hoed, briars, and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they do not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God is going to chop down his vineyard, Israel, dwelling in their new Eden at the tabernacle, because they refuse to love the Lord because they refuse to fruitfully multiply under God's good word. They are going to be blown away like the wicked chaff of Psalm 1, because they do not delight in the word of God. Nevertheless, in spite of all of this, God is still gracious. He promises that even in this exile, Isaiah 4, 2 through 6, there will be a branch, and this branch will be unburned. Uh, In Isaiah 6.13, this branch, we are told, is a holy seed that becomes a stump. This stump becomes a child that is born in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read about every Christmas. This child is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. God keeps his covenant with David, telling us in Isaiah 11.1 that this holy seed is the shoot of Jesse. It is this tendril, this branch that comes out from David's father. This branch Isaiah later calls the servant of the Lord in chapters 40 through 55. This servant of the Lord, we are told in Isaiah 51.3, will comfort Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her deserts like the garden of the Lord. So here it is. Israel is exiled, but in that exile, there's going to be a new exodus through this uh, seed of David. And it will bring Israel back to the Garden of Eden, he can do this though, because he goes through an Exodus. This is the strange thing: uh, Israel is not going to undergo this all at once. Uh, Isaiah fifty-one cannot happen without Isaiah fifty-three, where we are told that this servant is crushed for the sake of his people. He is exiled from the presence of God so that Israel can be brought back into the land. Um. Later, Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple. Zechariah tells us that after the people are brought back, they will rebuild the temple. This temple is flowing with water that will fill the whole earth. Uh, And just a small note here, the second temple that is built under uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, that is not the fulfillment of what's being talked about. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah themselves, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, 32 through 38, they say that they are still slaves. They are still in exile, even though they've been brought back to the land. Why? Because they are still enslaved to their sin. Okay? They might be in a new position. They might have the temple back. Uh, but they are still captive to their lusts. They are still in exile. So that's how the Old Testament ends. We are looking for this final exodus, this full and final new Eden from a full and final seed. And of course, this comes through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the seed of Abraham, the son of David. Um, In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember uh, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus and it says that they are discussing with him. Your translations probably say they're discussing, discussing his departure. Okay. Uh, literally, uh, I, I hate to be that guy, but literally in the Greek, all right, uh, that word departure is exodus. They're discussing with Jesus his coming exodus, his coming crucifixion, which Jesus calls a baptism, this water judgment that's going to flow over him. Jesus' crucifixion is the final cataclysmic water exodus. On behalf of Israel, Jesus, like Isaiah's servant of the Lord, remains faithful to the Lord and suffers the punishment that they deserve because of their sin. He experiences the full weight of exile, being banished from God's presence on the cross and from the earth in death. He is taken under the flood of God's fury. Like sinful humanity in the days of Noah. He is plunged beneath the waves of God's wrath, like the Egyptians. However, unlike anyone else that we've seen so far in redemptive history, Jesus' judgment leads to a salvation from death. Since Adam was disobedient at a tree, Jesus, the second Adam, was obedient on the tree. He is raised. Uh, in salvation from death and resurrection three days after his exodus. And interestingly, in John chapter 20, John makes a point to tell us that Jesus' resurrection took place in a garden. Uh, So the story continues. Finally, after 40 days... He ascends, he's taken up to the ultimate Eden, the heavenly temple, while his followers are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with disciples. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, his exile and his exodus do what none of the other exiles in Exodus have done to this point, namely, they take away sin through perfect obedience. And they fully deal with the penalty of man's rebellion. All right but that's still not the end of the story because the question is, where's the new creation then? Where's the new Eden? If Jesus has brought about this full final uh, exile and exodus through his death and resurrection because he was the seed that's been promised, where's the garden? Are we still waiting on it? Is it here? We, the church, are that new Eden. Christ came to bring the kingdom of God, which begins as a seed and blossoms into a world-filling tree, we're told. We are God's grove. We are planted in Christ to bear fruit. He is the fruitful vine, and we are the branches in him. We are exiled from God because of our sin, and we each go through a little exodus, a cataclysmic water judgment in our baptisms, just like Noah. We're told that in 1 Peter chapter 3. In Romans 6, Paul tells us that we have been baptized into Christ and that we have been planted in him by that baptism. It's garden language that we're given. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us explicitly that our baptism is just like the exodus from slavery in Egypt, except as an exodus from slavery to sin. It deals with the root of the problem. We are delivered from the true cause of exile. Our sin, we are brought into, uh, through water into God's new grove, the church. We are called to bear fruit as God's Christ-shaped garden. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.7 and Ephesians 3.17 that we are rooted in Christ. And therefore, as Paul tells us in Galatians 5, we bear the fruit of the Spirit as we meditate on God's word. We are snake slayers in Christ, uh, ridding the world of the serpent's power from our Edenic kingdom as we partake in the elements of Eden the water of baptism, the bread and wine that are like the trees in the garden. We both grow as God's new creation in Christ, and we renew the whole earth as God's garden until by sight we see what we see each Sunday by faith. Or as John says in Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. There will be no need for lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be the light, and they will reign forever. So the full picture. Uh, Eden, we begin there. We are exiled by our sin, brought back through Jesus Christ. That's prefigured all through the Old Testament. Finally, until we end up in this new Eden that is already not yet. We are there. We are bringing it. It will come down uh, one day through our work in God's garden. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed K I R K dot com.